0: Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey everybody, how are we today? Good, man. Shouldn't you people be at a lake house somewhere? (laughs) I mean, do you not have friends? We are the left behinds. That's okay. We don't need those people. We have each other. All right, everybody? (laughs) Um, No, welcome to CBC. My name's Charlie. If we haven't met, I hang out around here after the service. I'd love to meet you. Hope it's been a good Labor Day weekend. Hey, we're in this series. We got two weeks left in it. Now, a few months back, we asked everybody to send in questions that you might have about basically what the Bible says. And the point and purpose was to find that place where our faith in Jesus meets our everyday. To, to know that, that one day it's gonna be about heaven, but until that day, our faith, our belief in Jesus, the scripture is very real, in a very real way, talk about our everyday, how we live. That's why we follow Jesus, not just for one day, but for today. And we have two weeks left, and then today we're gonna to talk about Sexuality and our response in a specific way, and next week we're going to talk about politics because job security is for the week. Um. <laughs> now, these two actually were the, uh, the two most asked questions that we got in, in all of this, and all the 170 some odd questions that sent in. And so, really, we, we do say it every week in this series outside of our goal being to see a lived out faith every day. Uh, what we really want to do is recapture the church as a space for dialogue, as, as a space for discussion, even as a space for disagreement, because we're not so good with that anymore culturally. We live in a place where if you disagree, you disassociate, and that that cannot be true for the church, because if you never disagree with anything said in a church, you're probably your own God, and you're probably not growing. <laughs> and so we're going to be a place today, specifically. Some people might think I'm not going far enough and some people might think I went way, way too far and neither side are happy and so I'm probably gonna be pretty happy there, you know? But I'm gonna need your grace as we talk about things today. Language is fluid. This conversation is moving very quickly and I just want you to know that our goal up front is to show people the love and grace of Jesus. That's it. And so we have a job to do as people that come to this place. And we say it each and every week that as we come together on a Sunday morning in this space, the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And what that means is God is doing something here in and through his Holy Spirit, right to your spirit. What that means is that we live in a critical culture that first tries to tear down so that we can be built up, but the way of Jesus is not that way. And so we come today. Not listening without any level of good, but listening, saying, where is the goodness of God in what we're hearing and how we're speaking? And so we start this time by just praying together. I'm going to ask that you pray that you might see the spirit move in your world today, that God might convict you in all the good ways and give you joy as you see more of the fullness of his goodness. And I pray, I'm going to pray, um, I'm going to ask, excuse me, that you pray for me. Man, I need it today. Okay, everybody? Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for this space. I'm thankful for your church that we can come together and be a, a place of healing for the hurting. That's all of us, by the way. I'm thankful that we can be a place for discussion because we're all on the path to knowing God more fully and we need each other for that. May we never forget it. God, as we gather together and open some scriptures and, and ask some questions that might, some might find challenging, just give us a grace to listen and hear well. If you're willing, just say a quick prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning. i ask you to pray for me that I might do a clear job of talking through some muddy issues that God might use the preparation and my words to show us more of why he's worth following. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I've been at this church for 14 years, you know that? 14 years. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine the other day, and he couldn't believe it, and neither could I, because he said, I don't look a day over 29. <laughs> and uh, one of the beautiful things I've found about being in a church this long, I never thought I would be. You probably know some of my story. Never, ever thought I would be. One of the beautiful things is that I've had the ability and the privilege to walk with families for a long time. When I got here when I was 26, I was a uh, part-time middle school director. They didn't even call me a pastor then because, you know, like I've said before, let's be honest. And and I met some families then. And it's beautiful to watch their kids that were, you know, five, six, seven, eight, or, you know, 12, 13, 14, grow up. And I'm still in contact with a lot of those families. A lot of them are still here. Some have moved away uh, from the church and from the area. And over the last probably year, at least a half dozen times, some of those families have called me and said, hey, you know my family, and you know my kids, and you've loved my family, and you've loved my kids, and my kid just came out as gay, and I don't know what to do. That's hard, (laughs) you know? It's a difficult place to be in. This conversation is not one as much about theology as it is love for those we care about deeply. This conversation today is about how we love those around us. When we talk about this question of sexuality in the church, we're going off of the questions you guys sent in, and do you know what? we got more than anything else. We really actually didn't get any questions on is it right or wrong, or does the Bible say that it's okay in some ways? The question we got predominantly around homosexuality was how do we live in a culture that seemingly is moving farther and farther away from a traditional view of sexual ethics? How do we live in a culture that seemingly differs from how we see sexuality laid out in the scriptures, one man and one woman? how do we do that and love people well? I actually really enjoyed reading these questions because sometimes you can tell a lot from the questioner by the question they asked. And it wasn't, why are these people so wrong all the time, right? It was, how do we love well? And I appreciate that about this church. It's a grace-forward way to ask the question. I think traditionally, too, this is a conversation the the big church is having more and more of and needs to have more and more of. There's a a book, I'm going to quote a lot of books in this today, but Andrew Maron wrote a book called Us Versus Us, and he did some of the most extensive uh, data research from an LGBTQ perspective in the church. And he said that at some point, um, out of the thousands of teens that he interviewed and adults that he interviewed that fall into that camp, he said that 86% of them grew up with some kind of faith community, 86%. And then he said that 54% of them have left the church. I'll quote a little bit. He said after that and talking to him, he said he found that most people that are attracted to the same sex don't end up leaving the church because they were told it was wrong. They leave because they were dehumanized, ridiculed, treated like an other. I love this line. He said, people will always gravitate towards where they're loved, and if they don't find love in the church, they will go somewhere else. So today, we have a conversation about our response And look, I'm not going to get into the scriptures on what the Bible says about the rightness or wrongness of it. At CBC, you can read on our our website, we have our traditional view of sexuality, which means that we believe that it's between a man and a woman. That's what marriage is defined as as well, because that's what the Bible says, and that's what Jesus says, and it's consistent. We're going to talk about it in a sec. But our response is, how do we respond to a culture that doesn't believe that anymore? Because that's the question we're asking. But before we get into it, we got this one question that I really liked, and we're going to do what we've been doing it the last few weeks. We're going to sprinkle questions throughout, and so it's going to feel maybe a little more segmented, but hopefully it doesn't at the end, and, and there'll be takeaways kind of all throughout and all along, and so I hope the Spirit hits you where and when you need it. But this is a longer-form question. We'll put the shorter form up on the screen. Somebody wrote... As church theologians have done for centuries before us, they were tasked with discerning the cultural, historical, literary-laden points of view of ancient texts from the universal, which are the patterns of imaging Christ for all followers of all time. I love the questions that are paragraphs, not sentences. You are my kind of people, all right? The question goes on to say... Church history uh, records fumbling and painfully correcting um, in different tasks like this. What is Crossroads, CBC's approach to distinguishing cultural principles from universal directives? What we mean by that is, how do we know that when the Bible says, don't wear this kind of clothing, it's for that space and that time and that church, and when it says, hey, homosexuality is not God's design for sexuality, that's for all of us for all time, how do you make the choice between those two? What is the difference? And there's really just three questions we ask when discerning those kinds of questions. Because that's a really good question to ask as we interpret the word of God for our lives. One is, do we see a consistency in the text throughout all of the scriptures? Meaning, is the same message upheld from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Or does it move and change as the Bible speaks to different places, different spaces, different cultures? Uh, Two, we have to ask the question, uh, what did the culture say about it? And then three, we've got to ask, what does the church believe for a long, long time? Because we've said it each week, these questions are not new. And we are not the first one to deal with those, let's not be that prideful. We are joining our voices to the big C church for the last thousands of years that have asked questions about humanity and sexuality and evil and how we live in a seemingly really, really, really desperate or, or uh, far apart culture. And, and so we have to ask, what has the church always believed about this and has it changed, has it not? What does that mean? And so the first question we ask when we come to this is, is what's the consistency of this messaging in the scriptures? there are things in the scriptures that are consistent throughout. For for example, let me throw some scriptures on the screen. Uh, In Leviticus 19, it says, the stranger who resides with you uh, will be like a native among you. You're gonna love him as yourself. For You're aliens of the land. I am the Lord, your God. So he's saying, hey, when you form your new community, don't treat outsiders like outsiders. Love the people around you. Jesus says the same thing in John 13, right? He says, as I've loved you, you should love one another. This is how people will know that you're mine if you have love for one another. Love your neighbor as yourself, these principles. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, from cultures of Egypt to cultures of Israel to cultures of now, the seeming currency of our people should be the love through which we show them because Jesus God loved us. And so it doesn't change. And in the Old Testament context, we don't have time to get into the power of that verse, but man, your neighbors that were not your countrymen were not nice to you. They were enemies. You fought them back because they were always trying to take your land. Very aggressive cultures. And instead, Israel sets up this communion. God says, hey, when they come in, don't just treat them like neighbors and kind of forget them. Treat them like one of you. Radical claim, by the way, in the Old Testament. Uh, let's go to another one at home and the sexuality kind of theme. Exodus 20, we did this question, uh, this verse in the summer. You shall not commit adultery. So it says, hey, I've designed intimacy and sexuality to be inside of marriage. And then Jesus takes it a step farther. You know where this is going in Matthew. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with desire has already committed adultery in his heart. He takes it a step farther. And so he maintains the consistency of God's ethic in this conversation about adultery, about kindness, about love. And so when we look at those things, we say, no, it wasn't just for Israel to treat foreigners like they're not foreigners. Or to love all people, because it's seemingly consistent throughout all of scripture. It's the same. But then there are verses in the Old Testament that that don't hold up over time, meaning that God spoke differently to different people at different times in different cultures. When's the last time you came to CBC with a baby goat and said, Charlie, spill its blood, right? I would say, no, thank you very much. We can eat bacon now because God is more gracious to us than he was to people in the Old Testament. There are New Testament verses, too, that we don't abide by because they were culturally specific. This is one of my favorites. If you try to do this to me, I will try to send you to another church. It says in this text, greet uh, all the brothers with a holy kiss. No, sir. All right? No, sir. I'm more of a high five from a distance guy. All righty. See ya. You are loved. Go with God. You know? Uh, Jesus also in the first century world, a way to show hospitality was to wash people's feet, because feet are gross anyway, and they walked in sandals where animals walked, fill in the blanks. So he said, Hey, wash one another's feet just as I've washed your feet. We're going to take communion today. I will not be washing your feet. That's a first century principle, not one for us today. So we have to really ask the question what's consistent throughout all of the scriptures, and without going into it too much, uh, consistently throughout all of the scriptures, sexuality is defined and deemed as something only housed within a, a marital relationship. And a marital relationship is deemed as only being blessed by God, if or designed by God to be between a man and a woman. So all sexual activity outside of that, God says, is out of bounds. All of it. From the four verses in the Old Testament to the three in the New Testament. It, 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 main, it maintains a consistent theme throughout. So if if we have consistency of theme throughout the Old and New Testament, it seemingly moves from cultural directive to universal uh, principle, or cultural principle to universal directive. Second question is, what about the culture and day of the time? So there are certain verses in Timothy, we did this when we talked about it last year and talked about our view on women's ministry and how it kind of changed here a bit, and we said women can be pastors and they can teach and all, all those things. And we said the scriptures that we find there in Timothy are more culturally laden because there was a power struggle with women and men in the church uh, in First Timothy that you see. But, but when it comes to the church in the early days, especially in the first century world, uh, homosexuality was actually, specifically homosexuality, was actually more celebrated then than it is now. We think that we are like lighting the world on fire with our grotesque sexual ethic. We aren't. Study Greece or Rome. Nero, for example, who was the emperor when Paul wrote Romans, more than likely, uh, he had a 12-year-old boy as a husband that he called Lady. He actually got married to a man and a woman and dressed as the wife in the marriage ceremony. We are far and away less progressive sexually than Greece was and than Rome was, and it's in that context where the writers of the New Testament says, hey, this is not for your flourishing. It was harder to live that out then than it is now. So it wasn't going along with cultural norms or narratives of that day. And then finally, has the church been consistent with this one? It has. It has. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the church 2,000 years ago to a lot of churches today, it's been consistent in its ethic towards traditional sexual uh, morality, if you will. And so we have to ask the question, if this is true, um, what does this mean for us? Because it's really difficult. And just... To put all my cards on the table, I think that there are followers of Jesus that, that would disagree with our interpretation of those texts. I really do. There's a book called Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian, and he's going to argue other than that. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I disagree with you. I'm okay with that. Like I said, we can disagree today, but this is where Crossroads stands on it. Because at the end of the day, what we have to come down to is this idea that, that for us here, the scriptures and how we interpret them are going to guide how we live. There's a quote by the philosopher Nietzsche who said, those who hear not the music thinks the is mad. Do you guys know what a, a quiet rave is? All right, a quiet rave, you're doing it right now. A quiet rave, if you haven't seen it, look it up on, on the YouTubes, everybody. But um, it's, it's kind of a thing where you go to this big building or small building, and there's a DJ There's all these lights and everything's going around you, but it's completely silent because everybody there has these noise-canceling headphones on and they hear their music in their own ears and nobody else does. So you walk into these places and these people are just dancing and you're the only one not hearing what they're hearing and they look crazy, you know? Sometimes, as followers of Jesus, if the world doesn't see the value of the scriptures or Jesus like we do, they look at us and they think that we're crazy. I love what one writer said about it. She said, I can only answer the question of what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? So the question we ask ourselves as followers of Jesus is if God designed this world, how does he design it to flourish the best? And the scriptures tell us that. And look, there are things in the Bible that I I wish I didn't have to live by. There are things that I push back against too, but ultimately I say that it's God's world and that's the story that I find myself in. So that's where we come down to in this question. Well, the question went on and said, uh, will this approach ever change or is it open to reevaluation? evaluation um, I would say that the, the approach is, is not. The approach is pretty sound in terms of, hey, what does Scripture say and how does it say it and what does culture say about it now and then and, and what has the church said about it for years? I will say, though, on that same vein, like I said, we can find uh, disagreement here and still agree that this isn't an atonement issue, it's a sanctification issue. But I will say that in light of all of that, man, we're always growing as a church. We, we have got to fight, we have got to fight the deep down desire that we have got God figured out. CBC last year came out and said, you know, we're going to tweak our view on women in ministry at CBC. That process took like 12 years for us, you know that? A very, very, very long time. And so uh, I think that where we stand is biblical, and I think that where we stand reflects what God's desires are, but I also have been wrong before. It's not to say that I think I'm wrong now. We can hold those two things in tension. So are we open to reinterpretation? We're always learning and growing and saying, man, where do we see God more clearly today than we did yesterday? It's a humble posture, recognizing that sometimes the church has gotten it wrong. Let's never lose that. Let's never lose that. At CBC, we firmly believe that growing people change. Let's get into the questions a little more about this specific issue, because we're 20 minutes in, and oh my goodness. Um, (laughs) This one question came up. We're going to take it in two different ways. What's a good way to engage in conversations with LGBTQ and related issues? I think when we have this conversation, I don't know where you come from on this issue. Some of us engage with it every day. Some of us have read books on it. Some of us have done a lot of study, and some of us haven't, and that's okay, and so when it talks about where we engage, I think we have to first real quick define some terms and talk about our posture towards it. So what I want to do in, in, in just a couple minutes is talk about some terms. So when we say gay Christian, for example, um, that could mean a couple different things. One, it could mean Christians that are attracted to the same sex, and two, it can mean Christians that are active in that lifestyle. Let's make a, a difference between the two real quick. When we say same-sex attracted Christians, or some people call that gay Christians, and some books are gonna use words differently, um, that necessarily doesn't mean they're acting out those inclinations, and there's a difference. One we believe is a temptation, and temptation isn't sin. James says it like this. Each of you is tempted when he's lured and enticed in his own desires. Then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. There's a differentiation between temptation and sin, and I know that's true because Jesus was tempted and he was without sin. So as a church, I think the first thing we have to do is talk about the fact that there are some people that have same-sex desires, and that's not intrinsically or inherently sinful. What that does is it allows us to allow people to hopefully be more honest with us (laughs) and not shun. We have a history of shunning things we don't understand or agree with in the church. And so when we talk about this question of... What does it mean to engage in this conversation with same-sex attracted Christians or LGBTQ community? I think we start by saying that there are people that are attracted that that don't act in those attractions and and most of the Protestant Christian camp would say that that's an okay place to be, that there's no sin there. Then the real question comes in when we say, "Well, what what if you're living an active gay lifestyle and you call yourself a Christian? That's the hard part. That's where sometimes our camps disagree. And they're going to go to this verse, among others, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, passive uh, homosexual partners, and practicing homosexuals. And sometimes that's where we stop and say, see, look, they can't inherit the kingdom of God. They can't be in the tribe of Jesus. They can't be one of us. But we've got to keep reading. Verses are usually best if we read the whole thing, not half of it. It goes on to say, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, the verbally abusive, and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you once lived this way, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the spirit of the Lord our God. One thing to note in this verse, and in Romans, where the church goes a lot to talk about this particular set of sexual sins, is it includes way more than just homosexuality. (laughs) It includes all kinds of sins. I love what Romans 1 says about it. It says they changed the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. That's the problem. Everything else is simply a symptom. There's no depth chart to sin with God. There's just not. Being a sinner is a binary term that we inherited from Adam. It's passed down through our, if you will, DNA of our forefathers. And we would say at CBC that just because we're sin, that doesn't make us sinners. We, we are sinners, and that makes us sin. There's a difference there. One starts with the idea that you were good, you messed up, and now you need Jesus. The second one begins with you needed Jesus from the get-go. You just didn't know it yet. That's what we believe, that we all need the same amount of Jesus. Let's just get a little uncomfortable for a sec. We're really good, I think, at... Telling people the sins we don't struggle with are what's gonna be their downfall without seeing the sins that we struggle with being our own. So specifically in Corinthians and in Romans, it talks about sexual sin, all sorts of sexual sin. And we've defined it in the scripture, sexual sin is any sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. And let me tell you something, not one of us in this room is immune from that. There's a, a Barnapal put out, sorry, this Pew Research uh, last year. And it says that 50 percent of Christians believe casual sex between, 57 percent of Christians believe uh, sex between unmarried adults in a, in a committed relationship is either always or sometimes okay. Just saying that, hey, they believe a version of truth outside of the biblical definition of sexuality. It's 62 percent of Catholics believe that, 54 percent of mainland Protestants, and 36 percent of evangelical Protestants hold that view. It's a broken view of sexuality. Don't even get me started on all of the stats and numbers on pornography in our country and in our day. Some stats say that eighty nine percent of people see it from day to day. I have a long list of stats here that I won't quote to you. My point is we're all broken sexually in some way, and this is not to in any way induce shame. This is to ask one simple question Can you can you sin and still be a Christian? Can you sin and still be a Christian? Because if we're going to draw a line and say, well, if you do this kind of sin, then clearly you don't love Jesus. Where does that line stop? Where does it not apply to me, either my sexual sin or other sin in my life? Where does I find myself in the, in the narrative of God if I was born a sinner and need all of Jesus just like everybody else? The question is, can I sin and still be a, question, a Christian? And I maintained you. That's the only kind of Christian there is. It's the only one. The only kind of person in heaven is a forgiven one, not a perfect one. And that is the place with which we start when we have these conversations about Jesus. I remember when I was a middle school director here, I took these kids to this camp one time, and and, um, it's the only time I've ever done something like this. There was a speaker. And he got up there, and you know, this is 2007, 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there. And so. he he gave this message on the last night and he did the thing that that happened to me a lot as a kid. Like, hey, if you were gonna die tonight, where'd you go? And um, he had him fill out a a survey. And he said, like, are you a sinner? I mean, are you a, uh, have you ever stolen something? You checked yes. Have you ever cheated? You checked yes. Have you ever lied? You checked yes. And then he said, on a scale of one to 10, how sure are you that you're gonna go to heaven? And so like every kid is weeping in that room and like, I lied this morning, probably zero. Like I need Jesus again, you know? Uh, It makes numbers look real good at Christian camps, everybody. And we got done with that session and we went outside and I gathered my little troop of people and I said, just so we're clear, it's not a one to 10 situation here if we need Jesus. The fact that Jesus has died for us and washed away all of my sins is not a one to ten, it's a yes or no. And if we trust Jesus, the answer is yes. He did it at the foot of the cross, my sins, past, present, and all the ones in the future, regardless of how dirty culture thinks they are. And this just goes to the idea that when we have this conversation, my heterosexuality doesn't save me, Jesus does. And that's where we start. That's where we start a full understanding of the gospel of grace for all people is where we begin, even if we disagree about what following Jesus looks like in the day-to-day on specific issues. I know that I need just as much Jesus as you. And so let me give you three different ways I think that are helpful that we can engage in this conversation with others. Uh, the first is just simply how do we engage in conversations with people we know or about these kind of issues is we start by engaging with humility. Humility. I think it's a lost art in the church because we, we feel like if we know truth, we have to yell truth. But sometimes humility doesn't say what you feel like needs to be said in the moment. Sometimes it stops and it listens. I, I know that, that people struggling with, with this in this area of their life, I can't imagine what they go through. I can't imagine how hard it is. You're not asking them not to love. You're asking them not to have intimacy. Something we were built for. I can't imagine how hard that is. And as a church, I think the first step we take in humility is to sit back and say, tell me what that's like, because I don't get it. And, and maybe you do get it, and you can sympathize with others. It's beautiful. But simply recognizing that maybe we've been too loud for too long and listened too little, because love listens to those around us. I think as a church, we, we've forgotten some of our point and purpose. We feel like we're the world's sin police. We're not the world's sin police. Corinthians puts it like this, 1 Corinthians five twelve. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? We are not the world's sin police. <laughs> that is not our job. It's an old quip, right? God gave you two ears and one mouth, So listen more than you speak. If you know me, I'm deaf in one ear, so I'm immune to that. But everybody else, (laughs) everybody else, you should listen more, all right? So where do we start in this conversation? With humility, and sometimes humility means I don't get to say what I want to say, when I want to say it, because there's a better good. Two, how do we have this conversation with our own sin in mind? Just talked about it, but let's deepen it a little bit. Paul who wrote a third of your New Testament who if you built a Mount Rushmore of Jesus people is got to be somewhere up there. Uh, Paul said this in 1st 1 Timothy 1:15. This is a trustworthy saying and it deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. Paul said this. You know what Paul wasn't? The worst of all sinners, if you really like depth chart the sin and say, how would we do today? I shot bogey. I shot, he was not the worst sinner of all. He actually tried really hard to live a life of godliness and he looks at the world around him and he can't help but not look outside, but look inside and say, I, I was the worst. He knew what he was saved from and that allowed him to talk to people that needed to see the goodness of God. Because here's what I know to be true in a world that doesn't necessarily value compassion, that your love is limited by how much you understand your own forgiveness. Let me say it another way. The love you show flows from the love you know. It does. If you have a hard time finding compassion for somebody else, look and be reminded again what God saved you from. That's why Jesus, when he talks about it, he says, hey, don't judge or you're going to be judged. And then he goes on in Matthew 7 to say, hey, there's this problem you have. You see a speck in somebody's eye and you think it's the biggest deal in the world. You have a log in your own and you don't even see it. It's our posture towards sin and others. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for what we believe is good or true, but how we do it matters. It causes us to first, as we say at the beginning of every Sunday morning, the Spirit is Constantly moving inward towards conviction, not outward towards critique. The Bible is not a microscope for this to find the sin of others, but it's a mirror for our souls. That's where we begin, because we understand how much we've been saved from. I love what Bonhoeffer says in his book, *The Cost of Discipleship*. Judging others makes us blind, where love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace with others, uh, to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. In his book on, um, in, sorry, in an article called Against Heterosexuality, uh, Michael Hannon, in a publication of First Things, said if homosexuality binds us to sin, heterosexuality blinds us to sin. <laughs> Meaning that sometimes, because we don't struggle in the same way, we think we're not broken. And we are all, all, all sexually broken creatures. Sam Alberry, who's an Anglican theologian and struggles with same-sex attraction, said no one is straight, we're all skewed in one way or another. And when we're all very aware of our own sin, we become more sensitive to the sin of others. How do we have these conversations? We, we have it with humility, and we have it with, with, with constantly reminding ourselves of our own sin because it deepens our affection and our love and our compassion for those who we're talking to. Honestly, whether it's this sin or any other for the most part, by the way. And thirdly, I'd say outside of humility and with our own sin in mind, we have... This conversation with compassion, one writer when talking about how we have these conversations said, picture you with your arms extended in a posture of loving care. First Peter talks about this. It says, above all, keep your love for one another fervent because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. It's the idea that our job is to show people the beauty of God and love covers over sin, doesn't ignore it, but it realizes that we're all broken people moving towards Jesus together. That we start with compassion and that changes how we respond. Because here, here's the deal our, our goal as followers of Jesus isn't a sinless life. Hear me in this one it's not a sinless life, it's a sanctified life. And there's a difference. People that don't know Jesus cannot sin all day long, they can give money to the poor, they can be loving, they can be kind, they can be compassionate. The difference between sinlessness and sanctified sinlessness is sinlessness can be done without growing your affections for Jesus. Sanctified life that is sinless begins and ends because we see the beauty of God is better than our sin. Our goal as followers of Jesus is not to make the world sinless, it's to make the world sanctified. And motivation is the difference between the two. We are called to show people the beauty of Jesus all the time with how we live and with how we act and with how we speak. Because do you know why? That's how God saved you. Romans 2, one of my favorite, favorite verses. says, do you think, whoever you are, when you judge those who practice such things and yet do it yourself, that you'll escape God's judgment? Verse 4, he says, or do you not have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, and yet do you know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? You know what saved you? God's kindness. There's a story that I heard about 17 times this week from all the people that went to DTS that I know. And there's a prof there who's pretty well known and liked. And there's a pastor actually down the street, kind of Josh Patterson at the village. And the story goes like this. This pastor, this, this professor got up there and basically made a case for uh, the goodness of God and the holiness of God and probably had a little bit of a bent towards the holiness of God, a little more sinners in the hands of an angry, you feel me? You know, like wrath of God is coming for you and... And this college student, college student, got up there and said to his professor, who knew more, who studied more, who'd been more places, who probably loved God more, he said, hey, that was good, but, but don't we always have to remember that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Isn't that like the leading edge of the sword? <laughs> and it's funny, the prof now says, okay, he said to this kid, he said, write me a paper on it and convince me. And now every semester he gets in front of these classes and he said, this kid convinced me you can always convince a professor if you do it right. Huh? That the kindness of God leads us all to repentance. It's the idea that compassion is a better catalyst for change than condemnation. That's what we see with Jesus. You gotta, really any story. My favorite is anyone with a tax collector. Sexual sin might be the it sin the church singles out now, but back in the first century world, the worst thing you could do is be a tax collector. You literally stole money from your own people and gave it to their oppressors while getting rich in the process. Not a lot of love for tax collectors in that society, and Jesus kept on eating with them. Every night when I put my kid down to bed, we sing two songs, and most nights she picks Zacchaeus, tax collector, and you know the story when Jesus is walking by and sees him and Actually, as we're singing it, it's um, Zacchaeus is hiding in the tree, and and the words go, and as Jesus, you know, passed along, he looked up in the tree, but my daughter insists the words are, as Jesus passed away, and looked up in the tree, and the first night, I said, hey, kid, that happens a couple chapters later, and she yelled me, no, no, dad, I'm right, and so I said, what I say often, a little heresy's okay for a little while, as Jesus passed away, he looked up in the tree. And he says, you come down, I'm gonna go to your house today. Meals were intimate things you did with friends and family, not just acquaintances. Jesus met these tax collectors and he had compassion for them and nobody else did. Matthew's the same way. Compassion is a better catalyst for change than condemnation will ever be. I love what Kyle and he's a pastor, says. The church should not be outraged at people outside our community who need grace. We should be outraged at people inside of our community who refuse to give grace. Because ultimately what it comes down to is how you think change happens. And I hope and believe that God changes people and I don't. I hope and believe that God deals with people on his timeline when they're ready and when they can hear. I hope and believe that's the case with me. So if we fundamentally believe that, that God is responsible for change and not us, if we can get that weight of responsibility off of us, that frees us up to be more gracious and more compassionate and trust God with that. It's kind of this idea that we fundamentally are conduits of grace so people might see the kindness of God. In this conversation, that's what I want to lead with. I want to be a conduit of grace so that people might see the kindness of God. Because in this conversation specifically, I think the church has cluttered the playing field (laughs) a little bit. And we get to come alongside and pick it up and say, no, no, you haven't seen the beauty of God when you should have. So when we, we talk about how do we engage in conversations around this, my answer is simply be with kindness and with humility and with compassion and with our own sin in mind that we might be conduits of grace for one another, not necessarily saying uh, or, or giving in to the ethic of the day, but saying, hey, I trust God to deal with you when God deals with you. I'm just gonna show you he's worth it. He's worth following and he's worth worshiping. This goes to the next question. How do you show support for our gay friends and parents of gays? without condoning it? That's a tough one. How do we live in the tension of the world? How do we live with any tension? That this is not an ideal world yet, but we know things are right, but don't seem to work out, and things are wrong that seem to work out, and how do we live within those two things? It's this balance of grace and truth. How do we show support, but at the same time not say, I believe in everything you're doing is okay? Fundamentally, I'd start with saying we live in a nuanced world, and people can understand both those things at the same time. You can be happy and sad at the very same time, and I get that. I get that. Let's not call people the lowest common denominator but ask them to elevate themselves up to maybe the highest one. But I started this conversation about how we had this conversation with Matthew 11. The son of man came eating and drinking and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of a tax collector and sinners. And he says, but wisdom is vindicated by our deeds, meaning watch what I'm gonna do with the lives of these people and watch them be transformed. And I use that verse to say this, there's no such thing as guilty by association in Jesus. Okay? Sometimes we get really good at building out big churches and making little monasteries and forts so that we can protect one another. But the call to the kingdom really is an offensive, not a defensive posture. The call to the kingdom, what Jesus did, what the disciples did, what Paul did, what the church did was go out in culture that's messy and messed up just like we are and say there is a better way. The call to the church is to associate with those people that maybe by definition we shouldn't be associating with because we're different and say that there is a better way. The call of the church is to associate with those that oftentimes people think aren't worthy of association because there's no guilt by association in Jesus. That's what he did for us and be wise about it. You know, if you're an alcoholic, maybe don't go to bars. (laughs) That's Galatians 6, 1, 2, 3. But but the call of the church is to be offensive, not defensive, in how we talk about, how we talk with those around us that are struggling in sin areas. If you want to talk about how Jesus balances grace and truth, one of my favorite examples in sexual sin is John 8. So there's a woman caught in in adultery, if you know the story. Jesus walking, and some of the religious leaders found this woman caught in adultery, and they grab her, not the man, that's another sermon, they just grab her, and... They said, hey, this woman is called adultery. Moses' law says she should die. What should we do? They're trying to trick Jesus. And you probably know where the text goes. It says, whoever among you is guiltless, may be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then it continues, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She replied, no, not one. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. I'd love in this conversation about grace and truth. With Jesus, we see grace coming first. We see grace coming first. And then look what he says right after that. He doesn't stop there. He says, go and from now on, do not sin anymore. He didn't say, good for you. Go back in there, great game. He said, hey, don't do this anymore. It's not good for you. When we talk about the balance of grace and truth in Jesus time and time again in a world of sinners, grace came before truth. You know why? I say it to leaders all the time because you need to earn the right to speak into people's lives. That that a true thing at the wrong time is no longer a good thing my goal is not just to say my truth. My goal is to show people the beauty of Jesus. And sometimes that needs wisdom around when and how we speak, what comes first and what comes second. I believe that when we talk about the conversation of any sin, but this one specifically, we need to lead with grace because Jesus saved you before you were the you you are now. That's what he does for others too. I think also when we talk about this conversation, about the, the grace and truth of it, realistically, the call to discipleship is costly for all of us. In Mark 10, I won't go there in the scriptures, but in Mark 10, there's a story about this rich guy that comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I've done everything. I have followed the letter of the law. What does it take to get into your kingdom? And Jesus says, sell everything you own and come follow me. And he says, he left sad because he couldn't do it. In Mark chapter eight, it says, hey, what's the cost of following Jesus? Take up your cross every single day, deny yourself, follow God, lose your life so that you might find it. Here's something we miss often. When we call others to the cost of discipleship around sexual sins, sometimes we've forgotten that God calls the same thing for us in different areas of our life. We've forgotten that we are all called to deny some of our deepest desires for the better that is Jesus. And maybe part of this conversation is our understanding that maybe we've missed how costly discipleship is because the sins we struggle with aren't the ones that we talk about. What if we cared for materialism as much as we did sexuality in this culture? I think the question we have internally as the Spirit moves in me, as it it illuminates my view and my understanding of what it means to follow Jesus is where is God calling my cost for his discipleship? Where is he saying, hey, hey, Charlie, man, this goes against your desire, but following Jesus is at a cost because it's good for you, and we're saying no to those things that broke the world in the first place. I think when we have this conversation, we can come alongside brothers and sisters and say, I know it's hard, but this is hard for all of us. <laughs> maybe the heart is different, but it's hard, and it should be. And if following Jesus isn't hard for you, then maybe you need to have a real conversation about what God is calling you to give up for the good of his kingdom about those areas of sin that he's working on because you're full of them because I'm full of them because we're all full of them and if you don't believe you're full of them you're full of it I had to do it but I think (laughs) oh (laughs) in my head I was like no okay let's go (laughs) but that's how we have some of these conversations it's understanding it's not an us versus them but it's all of us moving together in our journey towards Jesus one of the last questions we've got two left they'll be quicker uh, what do you do if you're invited to an LGBTQ wedding? That's a tough one. <laughs> Man, it's just changed, I think, in the last probably 20 years, and I think for the better, but uh, first I'll say this. I think it's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of conscience. There's not a scripture I can go to that says, don't go. <laughs> um, it's a matter of conscience. You have to do, Paul talks about this, and we're gonna get into it in the fall, the Romans you know, 13, 14, 15, stronger, weaker brothers, this idea that the spirit works in you And in those gray areas and the places that that sometimes there's not a definitive answer in scripture and like whether you go to a gay wedding that you gotta do some work and ask, God, are you allowing me to do this? Is my spirit okay with this? And the other side of that is I have to trust you as a fellow follower of Jesus and trust that you are following God's following and not judge you by it. (laughs) And so I'd first and foremost just say that it's a matter of conscience when it comes down to it. And, And secondly, I'd say there should be some kind of litmus for this because like i said we live in a nuanced world and you can go to a gay wedding and fully not under, not 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 agree with that lifestyle and that person that you know that's there can understand both those at the same time they really really can we're big big people grown up boys and girls And I think that one of the best questions we should ask ourselves when we get in these kind of conversations is not, is it right or is it wrong? The scripture doesn't say either one of those in this conversation. It simply asks the question, what best shows the beauty of Christ and furthers his kingdom in their lives? So in any situation, whether it's a wedding or a birthday or whatever you feel like you don't know what to do, simply ask the question, what best shows people the beauty of God? And the answer might be there because we're called to make disciples and to show people to be conduits of grace so that people might see the kindness of God. In those situations, it might very well be that you think, hey, based on my relationship with this person and everybody that's going to be there, man, I, I don't feel freedom to go to this. Or it might be, if this person is going to see that God truly loves them, i got to show up and be present. I can see both of those being true. And so we say in that situation, where do we best, how do we best show the beauty and goodness of Christ in this situation for the person that we're trying to love well in a nuanced conversation? And then I'd say the last question. Well, I'm gonna quote one verse that in that conversation that just really helped me this week, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That verse to me guides my thought in it. And then the, the last question we got. How do we show Jesus to the LGBTQ community? That's a good one. You know, I was thinking about this week. And you can do all those things and hopefully they see Jesus. But but I think one of the best things that we can do to show Jesus to people is to remind people that they are Jesus is in the first place, so John in in the scriptures, he about halfway through the gospel, starts referring to himself as the one that Jesus loved, and you got to know how annoying that is for the other eleven, right? like John, could you go, I'm sorry, the one that Jesus loved John i said i'm sorry. The one that Jesus loved. Can you go grab some napkins, please? You know, I mean, you just gotta realize how arrogant that sounded. And he does it throughout his gospel. He does it in some of his epistles. He talks about John being the one that Jesus loved. It's this relational idea that breaks outside the bounds of some of the identities that we put on ourselves. now. I love what Nate Collins wrote a book called All Things Invisible, exploring identity questions that intersect faith, gender, and sexuality. A long title is usually a good book. Yeah, he says, sexual orientation as a category of personhood requires us to view relationality excuse me, through the lens of sexuality. Instead of the other way around, human persons are first and foremost relational beings, not sexual beings. It grounds our identity in what's true and good and right and not the temporal. And so when we have questions about how do we most kindly show Jesus to the goodness of God to people around us that are, are, are either LGBTQ or questioning, I think we first remind them that that is not their identity. Their identity, if they're followers of Jesus, is found in Jesus. And why I bring up John is because the beautiful thing about John that it reminds me of is that in following Christ, it means you're no longer defined by who you love, but who has loved you. I think that is a great place to show people the goodness of Jesus that might have lost it. That the lens through which we define ourselves and others is not our sexuality, me included, but by how much God has loved us. And if we find and follow Jesus, it means that we're not defined by who we love or how we love, but who has first loved us. I think that pushes us forward. And hopefully, as we do that, and that's a long conversation that takes time to break down the, the false identity structure of our culture. <laughs> and, that, and that flies, not just in this conversation, but we're gonna get into politics next week, so like a third of you will be back. And we'll get into politics next week. And it's the same thing. That's where we come down to all this. Jesus to find you. His work on the cross to find you. It says you're worthy of my love. Nothing else does. And that's our job is to show that to people. If you want to read more or learn more about this, there's two books I really, really highly recommend. There's several, but there's two I highly recommend. We'll put them in our link online. One is Leading a Church in a Time of Sexual Questioning by Bruce Miller. He's a pastor in McKinney. It's the best book I've read on the topic. It's very, very good. It's very well researched and thought out and deep. The second is Washington Waiting by a guy named Wesley Hill. It's a smaller read, but it's a really beautiful read. It talks about such compassion and conviction because this conversation is ongoing. This issue is not going to go away. It's probably going to get harder than it is easier. But our job is to be conduits of grace to show people the kindness of God. Not sacrificing truth, but hopefully in doing that, seeing that our truth can be beautiful because God is. And so we, we end today with a place where we're all the same. We end today with the place where equality is, 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 is really put on all of us, we end today with communion. And we remember that regardless of the sexual sin we're struggling with or the other sins that we're struggling with in this world, Jesus says at the foot of the cross, you're mine, you're loved, you're cared for, you're died for, and life is yours again. At the foot of the cross is where we find what we need the most. And that's that we all need the same amount of Jesus whether you're a disciple or a Roman soldier or Mary that day or you or me or in this church or that church or a follower of Jesus or an atheist, at the foot of the cross, we're all the same. Because we are loved by what he did for us. And in this conversation, may that be our guiding principle. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we have tables. That's all gluten-free because we care for all kinds of people. Diversity. Um, We got tables up here. (laughs) And as you come, you take the bread because Jesus is my my bread. This bread represents my body that's broken for you. And then you'll eat it and you'll dip it actually in the, the cup. And that's his blood that was shed for you. It was shed for all of us because he loved us. And he promises us a better life in a better way than the brokenness of the world that we live in now. So come and take communion after I pray. God, I'm thankful. At your expansive love for all of us. I'm thankful for your never-ending grace that we all need. I'm thankful that you use a broken people to communicate the kindness of God. What a powerful name it is. got to pray today as we have a conversation that is messy and nuanced, that you give us some clarity around how to have it with our loved ones. You help us to love well. Some people might see your beauty. He gives wisdom and grace because we need help. And then as we take communion, you remind us of what you saved us from so that we can in turn remind others. pray these things in the name of Jesus.